Did you hear about the woman who had been married to four men? Her first husband was a millionaire. Her second husband was a film producer. Her third was a butler. And her fourth husband was a funeral director. A millionaire, filmmaker, butler, and mortician. Of course, the woman explained her choice in men as follows. It was one for the money, two for the show, three to get ready, and four to go. And that's a good lead-in to this morning's Bible study. For in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul deals with the subject of marriage, divorce, and singleness. He addresses marriage in verses 1 through 9, divorce in verses 10 through 24, and singleness in verses 25 through 40. Today's text has something for us all. Now up to this point in Paul's letter, he's dealt with problems that existed in the Corinthian church. Their divisiveness, their tolerance of blatant sin, their use of the secular courts to settle their disputes, and their lax views on sexuality. Paul had corrected these Corinthians. But in chapter 7, he begins to answer questions posed to him by the church. Apparently, the last 10 chapters of his letter make up Paul's response to a previous correspondence. And he begins with the subject of marriage. Verse 1. Now, concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Here, the Greek word translated touch refers to an act of intimacy, to touch in a sexual way. And this is the Apostle Paul's first point about the institution of marriage. It's just a good thing to avoid. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, God had said before, it is not good that man should be alone. And of course, his answer for our loneliness was marriage. And yet here the Holy Spirit says through Paul, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. So which is it? How should we feel about marriage? Reminds me of the old saying, marriage means showers for the bride and curtains for the groom. People have read chapter 7 and they have accused Paul of having a negative attitude toward marriage. That's an unfair conclusion. Paul's comments here are not intended to be a comprehensive examination of marriage. Remember, he's replying to questions that have been asked. If you want to read Paul's unabridged version on marriage, read Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33, where he exalts marriage as proclaiming it to be a picture of Christ's relationship with his church. Read 2, Hebrews 13, verse 4, where Paul assures us that sex in marriage is pure and holy. Also read 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, where he lists forbidding to marry as a mark of apostasy. Yes, when you consider the totality of Paul's teaching, there's no contradiction. Generally speaking, Genesis 2 is correct. It is not good that man should be alone. And yet there were unique circumstances and distressing situations where 1 Corinthians 7 is also a correct view on marriage. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. Paul goes on in verse 2. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, 
Let each man have his own wife, and let each woman have her own husband. Now, in Matthew chapter 19, verse 12, Jesus speaks of people with the gift of celibacy. He refers to them as eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. I believe there is a gift of singleness. For some people, the sexual appetite isn't a problem. They have no burning desire or need to get married. They can take it or leave it. To them, life seems just as appealing flying solo as it does getting married. In fact, later in chapter 7, Paul will emphasize that for a Christian, singleness can actually be an advantage. Singles aren't distracted by the many concerns that preoccupied married people. In essence, a single Christian can be more singly devoted to the Lord. But either you got this gift or you don't. And this is where we shouldn't really over-spiritualize things. If you're a man and the sight of a pretty girl races your pulse and heats up your hormones, trust me, God has not blessed you with the gift of singleness. (laughs) You need a wife. And if you're a woman who keeps dreaming about being swept off her feet by a prince charming, it's very likely this gift isn't for you. If you desire sexual intimacy with the opposite sex, yet try to live a single life, it'll likely lead you to sin. In other words, if you're the marrying type, then it's best for you to get married. Verse 3 tells us, Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. When Kathy and I married, we made a swap. Her soft, curvaceous, beautiful body became mine. While my hairy, ugly, (laughs) lumpy body became hers. What a deal for me. Not so much for her. But a big part of our marital responsibility is to meet each other's sexual needs. Paul says that we are to render the affection due. The Greek word due means owed. A married person owes it to their spouse to engage in sex lovingly, passionately, and frequently. Now, I'm sure there's some selfish, sex-crazed husband out there somewhere who has misused this verse to endorse a perverted or unrealistic demand. No one has the right to use another person for their own selfish gratification. A wife is not her husband's sex toy. In fact, Ephesians 5 verse 25 explains a married man's motivation. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church. And gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it. God calls a husband to love his wife in a way that cleanses and purifies her, not harms her. But marital love does carry with it a sexual expectation. For as long as married partners are physically fit, it's not unreasonable to expect sexual interest and expression from your spouse. In fact, it is a Christian's duty. For Paul says to married couples in verse 5, 
Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Notice the one legitimate excuse to forego sex is fasting and prayer. Not, I'm too busy. Not, oh, I'm too tired tonight. And heaven forbid, it's not your birthday. (laughs) Hey, marital sex should be frequent because God said so. Always remember the devil's strategy. He does all he can to encourage you to have sex before you get married. Then he does all he can to discourage you from having sex after you get married. Married couples should realize that the sex act is a tool to build with, not a weapon to fight with. If you withhold sex as a means of punishing or manipulating your spouse, you are disobeying God. Marital sex should always be an expression of committed love. Pastor Charlie Shedd, he wrote a series of letters to his daughter before she married. It was published in a book. In one of those letters, he advises her, Dear Karen, Smart girls don't ration their men. Your husband needs sex, even when it may be the farthest thing from your mind. Convince him that you love him so much you enjoy sharing your charms with him simply because he's in the mood for more. Wives, here's a reminder. Every day your husband goes out into a sex-obsessed world, and he does not, he has not been blessed with the gift of celibacy. If he had been, he wouldn't have married you. I'm sure that wasn't the only reason he married you, but trust me, that was a big reason. (laughs) Your husband married you because he wanted a holy, healthy sexual outlet, and he was willing to forego all the other women in the world to cultivate that with you. A wise wife doesn't ignore the obvious. Trust me, loving And passionate and frequent sex with his wife is what takes the sexual pressure off a husband. The temptations aren't as strong if a husband knows he has all the feminine affection he can handle at home. I was wondering how many of you had the courage to say amen. Verse 6. But I say this as a concession, not a commandment. Marriage is not a commandment, it's a concession to healthy human sexual desires. Paul is clear that not everyone is going to get married, but for those who do, the vow should come with a definite wow, if you know what I mean. Verse 7, for I wish that all men were even as I myself, but each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. Both singleness and marriage are gifts from God. And Paul enjoyed being single. At the time of this writing, he saw it as the preferred status. Of course, the question arises, how did Paul become single? Acts chapter 7 implies that Paul was once a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin, which required for a man to be married and to have children. Apparently, Paul once had a family. 
It's conjecture now, but it's possible that Paul's wife left him after he began to follow Jesus. Today, in some Orthodox Jewish homes, when a person converts to Christianity, they literally hold a religious funeral and consider the person dead. This may have been Paul's experience. However he got there, at the time, he had embraced being single. And yet again, he knows that singleness isn't for everyone. For once more, he emphasizes in verse 9, But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Once a pastor preached the sermon, Great Sex for Christians. He began, Brothers and sisters, sex is great on days that start with the letter T. Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, Sunday, today, and tomorrow. And I say amen. Yes, sex is a beautiful, God-ordained gift reserved for marriage alone. Don't ever think that celibacy is more spiritual than marital sexuality. That's simply not true. So, if God has given you a normal sex drive, then your goal should be to position yourself for marriage. How do you do that? Well, you graduate. You get a job. You move out from mom and dad. This can take a little time. So, while you're single, you learn to resist temptation. And you gain some self-control. And you pray for the right kind of person. And then you find him or her. And you muster up some faith. And you take the plunge. For marriage is God's means to relieve sexual pressure. As Paul puts it, it is better to marry than to burn. Now remember, Paul is answering questions that have been posed to him by the Corinthians. So having dealt with marriage... In verse 10, he tackles the subject of divorce. Now, to the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord, a wife is not to depart from her husband. Malachi 2, verse 16, is the Bible's definitive word on divorce. There it states, the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. And that verse will echo throughout chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians. Paul continues, But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and a husband is not to divorce his wife. Now in Matthew chapter 19, our Lord Jesus acknowledged the reality of divorce. He credited it to the hardness of the human heart. He stated that Moses established in the Old Testament law rules regarding divorce. But all of Moses' rules made divorce harder to, to get. It made it more difficult. God's law discouraged divorce, minimizing the damage it could cause. But divorce was never and is never God's ideal. You see, no marital problem is unsolvable with God. He can handle our problems if we bring them to him. And this is why, according to verse 11, if a spouse departs the marriage, he or she has two options. They should remain unmarried or they should be reconciled to their estranged spouse. 
In other words, if you divorce your spouse without a biblical justification, and we'll talk about that in a moment, but if you divorce without that justification, it's a sin. Now, sometimes a cooling off period or a temporary situation, separation can be beneficial, but it needs to be followed by a sincere effort at restoration. Remember, God hates divorce. Verse 12 tells us, But to the rest I, not the Lord, say, If any brother has a wife who does not believe, and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. Now just a side note here. Don't trip up over the phraseology. Paul says, I not the Lord, several times here in chapter 7. It's as if he's downgrading his counsel from divine inspiration to mere opinion. But that's not what that means. If what he wrote wasn't inspired by God's Spirit, it wouldn't have ended up in the pages of Scripture. You see, generally, Paul's writings run parallel to the teachings of Jesus. But there were certain subjects that Paul addressed that Jesus didn't deal with directly. And here's an example. For most of Jesus' ministry, there were no believers. In fact, his own disciples didn't truly believe in him until after his resurrection. Thus, Jesus had little opportunity to address the subject of a believer married to an unbeliever. That meant on this issue, Paul couldn't write, The Lord said, or Jesus told us. And yet the Corinthians were facing this challenge, and they desperately needed wisdom. And thus, through the process of biblical inspiration, the Holy Spirit provided them the counsel they needed through the pen of Paul. And here are his instructions. If you're a believer, and you're married to an unbeliever, and your spouse rejects the Lord, that doesn't give you the right to reject your spouse. If the unbeliever desires to stay married, then the believer should stay married to them. You know, this addressed a common problem in the first century. The Bible teaches that a believer should never marry an unbeliever. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 tells us that this is like hitching two species of animal in the same harness. It makes for an unequal yoke. A Christian and a non-Christian is like an ox and a donkey. They have two different natures. Harness them together and there's bound to be tension and friction. And while we're on the subject, guess how you avoid marrying an unbeliever? How about not dating one? You never date an unbeliever, you'll never marry one. There is a sign at the start of the Alaskan Highway. It reads, choose your rut carefully you'll be in it for the next 200 miles. When you marry somebody, you're choosing your rut. Wisdom thinks about where it's going to lead ahead of time. Christian marriage is until death do you part, happy or not. But here's what often occurred in the first century. Many of the first Christians were married before they heard the gospel. Thus, the gospel became a wedge issue in their relationship. Some spouses converted, others didn't. And Paul tells the Corinthians, if their unconverted spouse wants to remain married, then good. And here's why. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife. And the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. 
Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. Now, understand what Paul is not saying. He's not teaching that the unbelieving spouse or kids will get into heaven on the coattails of the believing spouse. Salvation is never by proxy. The word sanctified and holy are the same Greek word, hagios. It means to set apart. The word speaks of positioning and opportunity. And Paul is saying that when a believer remains married to an unbeliever, the light of God continues to shine into the dark life of that unbeliever and into the lives of their children. Christian witness and wisdom remains a constant influence in that family because of the believer's presence. Thus, that believer's involvement in the marriage ensures to a degree the spiritual safety for that family. And it enhances the likelihood of the spouse and kid's ultimate salvation. Now, I realize if you're a believer married to an unbeliever, your life can get very, very difficult. It can be tough. Imagine a three-legged race. You've seen this. Adult dads tied to short, chubby, stubby nine-year-old kids. It's amusing to watch the mismatched pairs awkwardly stumble along. But this is what every day looks like for a believer married to an unbeliever. Permanently attached to a person of uneven stature and unequal stamina. Often the believer carries an inordinate share of the load. Such a life is not easy. But if it means the eternal salvation of your family, then it's worth it. If this is your life, God loves you. And he will surely give you strength. Verse 15. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. So if the unbeliever departs or abandons their commitment to the marriage, then the believing spouse is free to move on. But don't conclude this hastily. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? The grace you demonstrate, the long-suffering you show, can be the very thing that saves your family. Thus, there are two biblical scenarios where God permits divorce and remarriage. The first is Matthew 19, verse 8. It reads, Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. But notice the exception. Sexual immorality or pornea. And the word is a broad one. It includes all illicit sexual activity, homosexuality, adultery, pornography. Thus, if a person falls into a form of persistent sexual misconduct, their spouse is then free to divorce and remarry in the will of God. Of course, the divorce isn't commanded. The offended spouse can choose to forgive and be reconciled. But God makes divorce available to the wounded spouse. You know, in the Old Testament, an adulterer was stoned to death, making the victim of the sin a widow and thus free to remarry. 
In the New Testament, God has mercy on the adulterer, but still affords the betrayed victim the same freedom to move on and to start over. And the second biblical justification for divorce and remarriage is what we've just read. Desertion. Paul says, if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases. In other words... If you've been deserted by your spouse because of your faith in Jesus and because of your righteous conduct, then you have the prerogative to move on with your life and remarry in the will of God. The Greek word translated depart here means to put room between. It it conveys an actual departure. But be careful how you apply this verse. A husband who ignores his wife and watches too much football on Saturday is guilty of insensitivity, not desertion. Just saying. A wife who spends too much money at the mall might be irresponsible, but she hasn't deserted the marriage. She needs your help, please. So don't force an application. And yet, are there more grievous betrayals that do count as desertion And I say yes. A man who physically abuses his wife and kids. To me, he's abandoned the marriage. A wife strung out on drugs who refuses to get help. She she may have abandoned the marriage. See, people might sleep under the same roof, but that doesn't mean they haven't left the marriage. And after 42 years as a pastor, I've concluded there are a lot of ways to depart a marriage without vacating the premises or filing the divorce papers. Now certainly, these kinds of issues are problematic. And I would never want to give a person in a difficult marriage a loophole to disobey God and to opt for the easy way out. If the unbeliever wants to remain married, then the believer should remain married. Hear me say this, you cannot divorce your spouse just because he or she is a jerk. You can't. That's not what Paul is saying. But is desertion limited to the unbeliever packing his or her bags and actually seeking a change of address? I don't think so. Here's where we need to be led by God's Spirit and be convinced in our hearts. Remember the one certainty we started with, God hates divorce. Marriage needs to be taken seriously. And then verse 17 tells us, But as God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk, and so I ordain in all the churches. Now Paul has been addressing marriage. If unbelieving Sam wants to stay married, then believing Betty needs to hang in there. But now Paul takes this principle of staying where you're called and he applies it in broader ways. He writes, Was anyone called while circumcised? Circumcision was and is the mark of being Jewish. But Paul is saying, If you're born a Jew, let him not become uncircumcised. In other words, don't think following Christ is going to get easier by adopting Gentile customs. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? In short, did you get saved as a Gentile? If so, 
Let him not be circumcised. Don't think it's going to be easier living for Jesus as a Jew. Paul concludes, circumcision is nothing. And uncircumcision is nothing. But keeping the commandments of God is what matters. You see, neither Gentile Christians or Jewish Christians have an advantage over the other. Both have their own challenges. Paul is saying, if you're a Jew, be a believing Jew. If you're a Gentile, be a believing Gentile. Changing your circumstances won't make a life of faith any easier. Start living for Jesus wherever you have been called. Here's a huge key to living the Christian life. Learn to bloom where you've been planted. Learn to bloom where you've been planted. I hear folks all the time, they say, well, when I find a wife, I'll settle down and follow Jesus. Or when I get a new job, I'll start being honest and ethical. Or we're living together now, but when we get married, man, we'll start doing things God's way. No, no, a thousand times no. If you're serious about following Jesus, start doing things God's way right now. Right where you're at. If it takes moving out and in with a friend, so be it. If it takes informing your boss there's just stuff you're not going to do any longer, so be it. Notice verse 20. Let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. Once we had a guy, he came to Calvary Chapel, gave his life to Christ. He was a a distribution manager for Budweiser. He drove a company van to the men's prayer meeting on Saturday morning. And I'll never forget, he parked way down the street. I wonder why in the world he parked down the street. We didn't care. But he was embarrassed to park a beer truck in front of the church. One day he confessed to me his occupation. He was afraid we'd no longer accept him as a brother. I told him, I said, Scott, God says start where you've been called. So we're going to help you be the best beer distributor you can possibly be for Jesus' sake. And I meant it. Now, I knew that that might eventually cause a few problems for him. And guess what? It did. Several months later, he resigned and got another job. But he started where he was called. And this is what God expects all Christians to do. Verse 21. Were you called while a slave? Do not be concerned about it. Oh, boy, that's a mouthful. You're a slave. Don't be concerned about it. But if you can be made free, rather use it. Slavery was common in Roman times. Many early Christians came from the ranks of slaves. And yet seldom did Paul in Christianity attack this evil head on. Christianity ended up changing institutions by changing individuals. Now here Paul doesn't discourage a slave from using his newfound faith to gain his freedom. If he can, he should. Perhaps his master has an affinity for Christians. But Paul tells the believing slave, even if his freedom from sin doesn't translate into freedom from slavery, don't let it stop you from living your Christian life now. Again, here's the point. Begin your walk with the Lord wherever you've been called. See, true happiness has nothing to do with our circumstances. Paul had met happy slaves. And he had met sad slave owners. Paul knows that happiness is a byproduct of a right relationship with God. Not comfortable in cozy circumstances. 
And then he says in verse 22, For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. And how liberating is that? It's not your physical circumstances that dictate your status. It's your spiritual relationship with Jesus. A slave who is a Christian is the freest of free men. And a free man who is a Christian is a slave to serve others and to show God's mercy. And so he sums up this principle. Brethren, let each one remain with God in that state in which he was called. As Christians, the road isn't always easy. We can find ourselves in prickly places. But Paul says, stay put. Don't immediately seek to escape your negative circumstances. For there may be lessons to learn by staying where God has you. Verse 25. Now concerning virgins, that is singles, single people. Since Christianity reserves sexual intimacy for marriage, single people were assumed to be virgins. And to the single Christians he writes... I have no commandment from the Lord, yet I give judgment as one whom the Lord in his mercy has made trustworthy. Again, Paul's language here doesn't dilute the authority of inspiration. It's just his way of saying he's tackling a subject now that Jesus didn't directly address. Verse 26. I suppose, therefore, that this is good because of the present distress. That it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be loosed. If you are loosed from a wife, do not seek a wife. And for the rest of chapter 7, Paul will extol the virtues of singleness. And if you're single, these verses are going to be a great hope and help for you. If you're married, don't panic. You haven't made a mistake. We've discussed the advantages of marriage. But based on the present distress, as Paul puts it, marriage may have a few drawbacks, a few challenges. This is where he goes in verse 28. But even if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Nevertheless, such will have trouble in the flesh. But I would spare you. Several factors complicated life for the very first Christians. For one, the early Christians endured intense, vicious persecution. And this was an awful burden for a marriage to have to bear. Imagine your spouse subjected to floggings and prison time and shipwrecks for their faith. If Paul had had a wife, I can hear her now. Honey, can't you stop dripping blood on the carpets? Oh, Paulie, honey, please talk to your angel about breaking you out of jail so you can get home for dinner time. Voice of the Martyrs founder Richard Warmbrand once told of a fellow pastor who had been persecuted by the communists. They tortured him by trying to get him to deny Christ. But he stood firm in his faith until they brought in his 14-year-old son. And they began to beat the boy unmercifully. 
And it was all the poor pastor could handle. He finally broke down and he verbally renounced his faith to get them to stop. You know, it's been said, a man who is a hero himself is a coward when he thinks of his wife and children. A married man is vulnerable to hardships in a way that he wouldn't be if he were single. Paul's advice to married folk is to live with the liability. But if you're single, getting married can set you up for greater risk. And then he says in verse 29, But this I say, brethren, the time is short. See, all this is under the, under the umbrella of Jesus' coming back. He's coming back soon. So that from now on, even those who have wives should be as, those that, those, as though they had none. Those who weep as though they did not weep. Those who rejoice as those who did not rejoice. Those who buy as those they did not possess. And those who use this world as not misusing it. For the form of this world is passing away. Again, Paul says time is short. The early church lived in the awareness that Jesus was coming back at any moment. And that's still true. That's how we need to live. And as a result, Paul had streamlined his life so that his only care was Christ. He encourages all married people to do the same. Certainly, Paul isn't suggesting that we abandon our marital responsibilities. But neither should we make our family an idol. And this concerns me about some Christians today. For I know Christian families that are so busy catering to each other's schedules that they have no time left for God. That's not why God made families. God created families to worship and serve Him together. And then He says in verse 32, But I want you to be without care He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he who is married cares about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. You know, when you get married, suddenly you have two sets of worries and expenses and demands and interests to focus on. If I weren't married, I wouldn't have to maintain two cars. If I weren't married, I would never have to purchase another tube of lipstick the rest of my life. Or call home when I'm running late. If I weren't married, I could spend all day serving God, witnessing the lost folks on the golf course. (laughs) But I am happily married. And God has commanded me to go home and minister to my wife. One husband writes, I didn't know what happiness was until I got married, but then it was too late. (laughs) Hey, I'm thankful for my wife and kids. They are both incredible blessings and obligations. So if you're single, why take on another obligation? Paul is saying that in the present distress, a wife and a family could just be a distraction you don't really need. It says in verse 34, there is a difference between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. But she who is married cares about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. Notice that. 
Wives, circle that in your Bible. Get out your red marker and circle those words in your Bible. Notice what he says there. The wife's main concern is how she should please her husband. That's not always how it works, but, but that's the ideal. The wife's big concern is pleasing her husband. Whereas a single person can care about the things of the Lord. He or she is free to go out of their way for God and for others. That perhaps a married person cannot. And this I say for your own profit. Not that I may put a leash on you. But for what is proper. And that you may serve the Lord without distraction. Now in Ephesians 5, Paul depicts marriage as this beautiful love story. I encourage you to read it. But here he's not quite as romantic. For here he calls marriage a leash. Marriage is like a dog collar that curtails your freedoms. That sounds rather harsh, doesn't it? But it does impose limits. I don't get to live a life of my own discretion. I have another earthly consideration. And that's my wife. And that's the way it should be. And in the next few verses, Paul speaks to either fathers of daughters or to men who were pledged to a bride. I'm not sure which one it was. It could be either. The point, though, is that he's speaking to a culture where the men dictated the future of their female relatives, or as Paul puts it, his virgin. And so he writes, But if any man thinks he is behaving improperly toward his virgin, if she is past the flower of youth, And thus it must be, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin, let them marry. If this woman you're responsible for, she's getting a little older, marrying age is passing, and she wants to get married, then let her get married. I mean, marriage is not a sin. Marriage is a wonderful thing. Nevertheless, he who stands steadfast in his heart, having no necessity, but has power over his own will, and has so determined in his heart that he will keep his virgin, does well. So then he who gives her in marriage does well, but he who does not give her in marriage does better. Again, Paul is pretty clear. If you have the self-control to live a single life and serve the Lord without distraction, then good. Singleness has its advantages. And so Paul concludes, a wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives. But if her husband dies, she is at liberty to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. A widow is free to remarry, but all Christians, widows included, should marry in the Lord, or that is, to another Christian. But she is happier if she remains as she is, according to my judgment, and I think I also have the Spirit of God. Again, God calls some people to be single. He calls others to be married. But he calls us all to bloom where we've been planted. Whatever your status is at the moment, do all that you do to the glory of God. And I hope to that you can say, Amen. 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 And there we have 1 Corinthians chapter 7.